0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. As most of you are probably aware, I'm not Pastor Mike. Um, Pastor Mike was up until very recently uh, in Europe on the island of Malta. Now, some of you are like me and are geographically challenged and you'd struggle to find Malta on a map. So this is Europe. Europe has Italy, which is shaped like a boot, right there. The thing that Italy is kicking at is a football named Sicily. And if you were to have that football resting on grass and crawling beneath the grass was an ant, that would be Malta. There we go, now you know where Malta is. And uh, Pastor Mike uh, recently sent out a uh, picture of his time, he sent out a few, but this was one of the pictures I sent out. Um, so it seems like everybody's having a good time, but this being a Pastor Mike picture, I was disappointed due to the lack of bears. So I thought I would fix that, and here we go. <laughs> this is the picture he should have sent out. So this morning we're continuing our journey through the book of First Samuel. Um, and some of you may be aware that I am kind of a forgetful person, and so when I approach a passage of Scripture, um, I like to take some time to look at its context, to consider questions like, okay, what's happened so far in this book that we're reading? Uh, where are we at now? Where are we going? So with that in mind, we're just going to do a real quick review of 1 Samuel in case you missed the last few weeks. Um, so, First Samuel is uh, was originally just a big old book that was called Samuel. Um, so you had First and Second Samuel; those were two halves of a big old book named Samuel. And uh, some of you trivia lovers uh, will wonder why we split Samuel into two books. Well, back before we had books that we could carry around, we had scrolls that we could carry around, and those were very long. And uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles were. Large, unwieldy things that people would need to try to, you know, hold while they read. And uh, so when we translated the uh, Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, the translators decided to split Samuel into two parts so they could have some two small, easy-to-handle scrolls instead of one ginormous one. Um, so that's kind of the The background as to why there's a first and second Samuel. Even though now we've got these books and we don't have a need for having a first and second Samuel, we're still kind of stuck with it. So, you might find that interesting. I found it kind of interesting. Um, Now, you'd think that a big book named Samuel that altogether has 55 chapters when you combine first and second Samuel, that uh, it would be all about Samuel. I mean, that's the name of the book. Um, but the interesting thing is that Samuel only kind of pr- uh, prominently appears in the first 16 or so chapters. And then at that point, the focus of Samuel shifts away from talking about Samuel the man and instead starts to consider Samuel's legacy, um, the two kings that Samuel anointed for Israel. Uh, we haven't met these kings yet. We'll be meeting one of them next week. Um, But this week we're going to consider Samuel, and remember who Samuel is. Samuel is the last judge of Israel, uh, the last of the leaders that God used to guide Israel before the establishment of Israel's monarchy. Um, And you may remember that he was the son of Hannah, who struggled with infertility, and she prayed to God for a son, and vowed that if God gave her a son, that she would give him to the Lord, and God took her up on it. So Samuel grew up under the tutelage of uh, Eli the priest who was serving at the tabernacle. Uh, We'll talk about Eli a little bit more later. Uh, But as Samuel grows and matures, God speaks to Samuel. And Samuel becomes a prophet and then later a judge of Israel. Um, So last week's passage ended uh, by pointing out that Samuel was a bit of a traveling judge. He had a regular judging circuit. Uh, in northern Israel, that started and ended uh, at his home, which was also his uh, mother and father's home in Ramah. Uh, And some of you are geographically challenged, like me, and you don't know where Ramah is. So let's take a look. Here's a map of Europe. (laughs) Israel is down there. Let's zoom and enhance. Zoom. There's Israel. We're going to zoom a little bit more. There we go. So that little red blob up at top is the circuit of Samuel. That was his uh, judging circuit. And down at the very bottom of that red blob that's hard to see is Rama. So that is where uh, Samuel lived and the home base that he had as part of his preaching circuit. So now we're caught up. We know what's happened so far. Uh, what is the current situation? So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and chapter 8 is kind of the transition point uh, between the time of the judges, uh, of whom Samuel is the last, and the time of the Israelite kings, the monarchy. Uh, so right now Samuel's about 54 years old. He's been sole judge of Israel for about 12 years. And uh, remember that judges were the leaders that God raised up to rule the tribes of Israel. So judges, uh, they knew the law well. They were tasked with applying it to tricky situations. If there was some uh, difficult case of applying the law, you escalated to a judge. And this meant that judges had authority to explain the law and its application and provide a ruling. And uh, as we all know, that whenever there is authority and especially authority over judicial matters, uh, there can be a significant temptation to abuse that authority for personal gain. Uh, Some people are willing to pay a lot of money to influence a judge to rule in their favor. Uh, But thankfully, God did not leave the decision of how his judges should handle bribery up to the judges themselves. Uh, God's very specific in uh, Deuteronomy 16 as to his expectations for his judges' behavior. Uh, in Deuteronomy 16, uh, starting in verse 18, uh, God says that you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, excuse me, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. So these are God's commands to his judges, his expectations to them. And how did Samuel act in his role as judge? These are God's expectations. Did Samuel measure up to them? Well, we actually know the answer to this question uh, because uh, later in 1 Samuel, Samuel himself brings it up. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 12, uh, Samuel gives his farewell address. So, spoiler warning in case you didn't know, Samuel eventually stops being a judge and gives a farewell address. And Samuel explicitly asks all Israel, whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And all Israel says, we, or, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. So this is... Samuel's behavior. We know how he acted. He followed God's commands and was a model of good behavior. But Samuel is starting to get older. Let's take a look at this morning's passage, um, starting in verse 1. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Um, So first I want to point out that this is a little bit unusual. It's not... Uh, Well, if you have a monarchy or some kind of situation like that, it's pretty common for a monarchy to be hereditary. You know, whoever is, uh, when the the old king dies, the king's son becomes king and so forth. But the office of judge is not like that. Uh, God appoints judges by raising them up directly and not by existing judges declaring their children to be judges in their stead. So it's a little bit unusual that Samuel did that. Kind of as an example of this, uh, in Judges 8, uh, Israel tries to make Gideon, who is a judge, king over Israel, and he refuses, and he says, I will not rule over you, and nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Samuel's the last of the judges. He can look at all the previous judges in Israel's history, and he can see that they didn't create little judging dynasties. So, why did Samuel do this? And on the next verse, in the next verse, uh, verse 2, it says, The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. This gives us a hint as to why Samuel made them judges. Um, So some of you are geographically challenged like me, and you want to know, where is Beersheba? Well, remember, this is Samuel's judging circuit. He went from Ramah down at the bottom up to Bethel, to Gilgal, and to Mizpah. Uh, So we saw that earlier. If you want to know where Beersheba is, that's Beersheba down there. So it's uh, 57 miles away from Ramah, which, you know, in our time, 57 miles doesn't seem like that much. But this was back when you had to walk that distance, And if you were living in southern Israel and you had a dispute that needed the judge's input, you would need to walk north 57 miles to make it to Ramah. And depending on when in the circuit, uh, in the judging circuit was, you might have to go further up to Gilgal or so forth. Um, So Samuel had uh, responsibilities in the north and due to his age probably kept him from visiting southern Israel very often. So if you are in a southern tribe and you have a need for a judge, uh, it's a little bit harder for you to get that justice. So Samuel's solution most likely was add more judges. He's got two perfectly good sons just sitting around who've could be, uh, who been raised seeing their father apply justice and so they can share the responsibility of judging Israel. Uh, this would lighten Samuel's load, it would help the southern Israelites to get help more easily, Uh, potentially it could introduce some continuity that over time Samuel could reduce his judging responsibilities as the people became comfortable with his sons taking over. It's a plan that makes sense and this is probably why Samuel breaks tradition and installs his sons as judges in Beersheba. Why would you waste two perfectly good sons? Well, it turns out that his sons are not so perfectly good after all. Um, In contrast to Samuel's upright behavior in dispensing justice, verse 3 says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways. Remember that Deuteronomy 16 passage we read earlier where God explicitly says, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. This is a core rule of being a judge, and Joel and Abijah broke that rule. Samuel's own sons decided that personal gain was more important than obeying God. Now I want to take a time out for just a second here. Um, remember how earlier I was kind of reviewing the context of this passage, uh, looking at the early life of Samuel, and we introduced his uh, mentor and his surrogate father, Eli the priest. And some of you may remember, Eli also had two sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And Eli's sons also abandoned their father's conduct and, acted selfishly for personal gain. And what's funny is that Samuel's first ever prophecy was God telling Samuel in chapter 3, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. So I want you to just take a second to imagine that, that you're in this position that your very first prophecy ever was against your surrogate father regarding the evil behavior of his two sons, his sons who did evil while ostensibly serving God. That's something that you carry with you for your whole life, the weight of God's judgment against Eli's sons. And then decades later, You hear of your own two sons doing the same thing, doing evil, while ostensibly serving God. I can't imagine that would be anything other than absolutely devastating to Samuel. Now, just to be fair, Samuel's situation was a little bit different from Eli's, and God treats them differently. Um, With Eli, his sons were practicing their wicked behavior at the tabernacle, and Where was Eli during this time? Well, he was serving at the tabernacle. He was right there. And he did not effectively restrain his sons. With Samuel, his sons were 57 miles away, and it's likely that Samuel was not aware of his son's behavior. Um, But the elders of southern Israel became aware of it. And so they, along with the other elders, deliver a message to Samuel, starting in verse 4, and they say, Um, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. These elders are really blunt. Hey, Samuel, you're old. Your time is probably coming to an end soon. Also, your sons are terrible. (laughs) Thanks for that, yes. This is an introduction to what the elders really want now, though, which is, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Later in this chapter, they're actually going to expand on that and say, There shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The Israelites wanted to be ruled like other nations, not by God sending judges when there were military threats, but a standing monarch who would always be ready to protect them from military threats, who would fight their battles for them. The Israelites wanted security. And kind of as a side note, is it a bad to want security, to be safe from your enemies? No, no. Um, But this is driving Israel to look for a way to satisfy this desire for security. And the first place that they look is in the nations around them, the nations that they are fighting, the nations that they conquered when they came into the Promised Land. They have this legitimate desire for security they want to satisfy, and their solution is to look at their surrounding culture and see how they solve that problem, see how their desire should be satisfied. Israelites want security while other nations have kings to develop and maintain an army to provide that security. That's clearly what they need to do. And as another side note, we're not really so different from Israel. We also have different kinds of legitimate desires that we want to satisfy, that we want love, we want security, sometimes physical security, but maybe financial or relational security. We want freedom or autonomy, And the question that we all need to ask ourselves is not, does God want us to be happy? Does God want us to be safe? Does God want us to find love? But instead, how does God want us to satisfy these desires? Uh, We need to make sure that our answer doesn't end with, well, what does our culture do to satisfy these desires? We're so used to taking our cues for how to do things by looking at the world around us. We might have a desire to use our time effectively, and so we're on a shopping trip, we see somebody pull out their phone and pay with their phone instead of pulling out their change purse and taking forever, and we think, aha, this is what we need to do too. Or we want to—we have a desire to see our kids succeed in life, and so we look at what schools our neighbors send their kids to or what programs or community service work that they engage in. You know, We have a desire to... Uh, Love and be loved. So we look to see how our neighbors date and woo and sometimes get married. The point's not that our surrounding culture is always going to be picking bad methods to satisfy their desires, but the point is that we need more than the wisdom of the world if we're going to make wise decisions. And we dishonor God when peer pressure drives our decision-making process. So Samuel is not happy with the heart behind this request and in verse 6 he says uh, it says that the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God confirms here that Israel is rejecting him as king, and like their neighbors, Israel is serving other gods. Samuel likely expects that this is going to lead to God rejecting the elders' request, but... God surprises Samuel by telling him to listen to the elders' request. And this is probably a good time for us to just remember that sometimes God has different plans from our plans. That Samuel has spent a lot of time with God, prophesying and judging and learning the law, but still Samuel checks in with God and God has him listen to the people. God has a bigger plan here that Samuel doesn't see yet. And sometimes God has plans for us and for those that we love that we do not expect, even if we think that we know God well. God may have bigger plans for our lives than we do. So God's told Samuel to obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, starting in verse 10, Samuel told all the words... ...of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers... people will cry out to God in dismay because their government will tax them. That's basically the argument that Samuel is making here in this portion of the chapter, that the king of Israel will tax their fields. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He'll tax their flocks. He'll take the tenth of your flocks. He'll tax the Israelite people themselves through conscription. Their sons will be military personnel to his chariots and to be his horsemen and commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and their sons will work in the king's fields as laborers or in his foundries making weapons and chariot equipment, and their daughters will be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and just in case you are thinking about this from more of a, an American cultural lens, thinking, more jobs, that's good, right? Well... In an eastern monarchy, if a king nominates you to an office, you have to kind of accept that office. Um, it's not really a thing that you get a choice in the matter. Whether you like it or not, if a king says that you need to do a thing, you do the thing. Uh, if you have a thriving vineyard and love growing grapes, and the king comes to you and says he wants you to be an officer in his army, tough. That's what you're doing from now on. The king will order his people to do things For his own benefit, tilling his own fields, reaping his own harvest, to the point that the people will cry out to God to deliver them, not from a foreign oppressor, but from their very own king. Samuel's warning here regarding the upcoming monarchy is strong. So, how do the people of Israel, who are communicating through their elders here, respond? It says but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said no but there shall be a king over us and we that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles and when Samuel heard all the words of the people he repeated them in the ears of the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel obey their voice and make them a king Samuel then said to the men of Israel go every man to his city so Samuel was going to select a king, and we'll meet that king next week. So what is our our story for this week? This is our story that God's leading his people through his judges, and the people surprise him out of the blue one day asking for a king, and God throws up his hand and says, fine, have a king. Well, God wasn't surprised by this. A hundred years ago, God had planned for this and shared his plan through Moses in Deuteronomy 17, where he says, when you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then God gives explicit instructions regarding the behavior of this future king. Things like kings must be Israelites, they must not acquire many wives, they must not acquire excessive silver and gold, they must write for themselves a copy of the law and read it all their life. They must keep the law. They must not elevate themselves above the rest of Israel. God knew that Israel would reject God as their king a hundred years before it happened. They knew that, or He knew that they would succumb to the peer pressure of the nations surrounding them with their fancy monarchies. They wanted a human king, not God as their king. But I want to point out that even in this situation of people acting sinfully, God still providentially acts for his people's good. That Israel's upcoming first king will deliver God's people from the Philistines, and his, the second king that's raised up in Israel will do the same, but will also be the dynastic foundation that God will use to return as Israel's king. The Israels rejected God as their king in favor of a human king that they could see and touch. And many, many years later, God himself would enter this line of kings as the God-man Jesus. A king that they could see and touch in order to save his people. With the broader perspective that we have in seeing the whole story, we get to see here that God is sovereign. That he is not surprised by our sins and that he uses them accomplish his good purposes just as he does here. Sometimes we choose poorly. Sometimes we chase our desires the way the world does without any reference to God and how he would have us satisfied our desires. But the story of 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the same as the story of the whole of the Bible, that God uses human choices even sinful human choices to accomplish his own plans for the good of his people and for his own glory. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you are not surprised by our actions, surprised by our uh, mistakes or sin, God. Thank you that you have a plan that is bigger than our understanding and that God, even in this instance of people rejecting you, that you use it as a way to bring about the salvation of your people and the salvation of us, God. Thank you for this uh, glimpse that we get of Jesus here in the Old Testament, God. And I pray that you would help us to trust you and not our neighbors when we are looking for how to satisfy the desires that you've placed into our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen.